This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 9th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The massacre at the offices of Charlie Hebdo in France is forcing a discussion about the press, religious taboos, and threats of violence in the face of those who value unfettered speech. At a Cato event in November, Fleming Rose discussed the struggle he faced when his Danish newspaper published depictions of the Prophet Muhammad and the firestorm that decision sparked. He spoke with Jonathan Rausch about the events that inspired his new Cato book, The Tyranny of Silence. It is indeed a privilege to sit on the same dais with Fleming Rose, who is, although he would deny it, I think you'll know in an hour why I regard him as a genuine hero, a remarkable man who has written a remarkable book. Um, It's really an extraordinary read. I, I can't recommend this book strongly enough because it's not only got very good theory on the importance of free speech and on what's going on in Europe, but it's also a person's journey of discovery, uh, finding out in a very immediate way why these things matter, going to the core of some very dark truths in Europe and also in America. Uh, Most of you probably know something about what happened in 2005, uh, but I thought we'd just begin there with at least a brief recap. As Fleming's book does, This begins with self-censorship that predates the Mohammed cartoons, right? It involves a children's book. Yes. uh, In in the middle of September 2005, um, a very famous uh, Danish children's writer, his name is Kor Blutken, um, he went public uh, to the Danish news service um, saying that I'm writing a children's book about the life of the Prophet Mohammed. And in children's book, you do need illustrations of the main character. Uh, but I have problems founding an illustrator for this book. And according to Mr. Blutken, uh, three illustrators turned down his offer, as far as I remember. And the one who finally said yes, insisted on anonymity, which is a form of self-censorship. Um, out of fear, you do, want, you do not want to appear under your own name when you do something. Uh, he was specifically referring to the fate of uh, Simon Rushdie. Uh, who received a fatwa from Ayatollah Khomeini in 1989 because of a few pages in the satanic verses. But he was also referring to the fate of Theo van Gogh, a Dutch filmmaker who was killed in Amsterdam almost exactly 10 years ago uh, because he had made a movie that a young Muslim, a young Dutch Muslim, found had offended his God. but we had only Kor Blutken's word in the beginning. He was the only source to this story. So, um, uh, um, uh, and it was a front page story in Denmark. And then we had a following up discussion at the paper. How can we follow up on this story? And then this idea came up. Why don't we invite illustrators or cartoonists uh, to draw the Prophet Muhammad uh, as they see him so we can see if there is censorship and, and there is this fundamental journalistic pr- principle, don't tell it, show it. So they would have to do, you know, using their medium to, uh, to answer this challenge. And you can also see from the drawings up there that, that they are very different, um, very diverse. They are not all, in fact, depicting the Prophet Muhammad. Some of them are. Uh, one especially that is now um, very famous. Um, <clears throat> so, so, uh, so because we didn't have a, a confirmation in the beginning, we in fact hold the cartoons for two weeks. 
We didn't publish them immediately. Uh, and over the course of those two weeks, um, we, we were confronted with, I think, five or six other examples pointing to the problem of self-censorship when dealing with uh, Islam. One was uh, Tate Gallery in London. They removed uh, an installation out of fear for you know, possible uh, aggressive reactions among Muslims in the UK. Uh, a publishing house um, uh, deleted a sentence in an essay by Ayan Hirschi Ali, this uh, Somalia-born former Dutch politician. And, and, and given, the these, given yeah. these precedents, did your paper expect trouble when you published this page? No, no. I mean, no one could anticipate. And all, I think all the people who today say, why, how stupid can you be? You must have expected these kind of reactions. I think it's, it's, it's what we call after real, uh, rationalize, rationalization in Danish. Uh, in fact, there had been published cartoons of the prophet before this, but they didn't cause this kind of, uh, of outrage and reaction. And I think the reason why it became such an explosive event four months later was partly coincidence. You know, there, there, there were political situations in, in some Islamic countries where those in power could use this case in order to promote themselves as, you know, the true defenders of, of their faith. So often the case with, with censorship and protest, isn't it? So, yeah, initially it's an interesting wrinkle. The initial reaction was not all that large. No. I, you know, the day of the publication, I received one phone call from a newspaper vendor uh, to the west of Copenhagen, and he complained and said they had had a discussion about it at the mosque that Friday, and that he didn't want to sell my newspaper anymore. But, you know, I received this call uh, people, well, uh, readers calling in and complaining about this and that. So I didn't, I didn't take especially notice. Um. So in 2006, <clears throat> some people begin going around the world showing purported cartoons, which in fact were phony, stirring up trouble. We begin to see protests, then we begin to see deaths. How many, do we know how many people died in those series of protests over these cartoons? I think the estimation is around 200. Uh, the vast majority in Nigeria uh, and the interference, I mean, the, the important thing about Nigeria is, in fact, that clashes between Christians and Muslims had been going on for about, at least since 2000, when this happened. So this was, you know, it was just one event in a chain of events that had to do with clashes between Christians and, and Muslims. We'll come back to the violence in your lives and, and your life and Kurt Restergaard's life. Um, but let's talk for a minute about how your reading of the situation developed. This book is the title, which is wonderful, actually, made me think, The Tyranny of Silence. Um, the idea here is that a lot of what's going on is not state censorship. Um, it's self-censorship, and that that can be just as important. You make it important, as you call it, I quote, the important distinction between self-censorship and good manners. What do you tell people who say... Look, what do you expect to happen when you're that obnoxious? Um, no, I, 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 yes, my, my, my distinction between good manners and self-censorship is basically that, you know, good manners is something that we choose out of our free will. I mean, I like when you talk nice to me and I try to, to talk nice to you. Um, and, and I behave when I go to a restaurant. I do not try to destroy, you know, 
public order and things like that. But self-censorship is when you, when, when you say, I would like to say this, I would like to make this painting or this movie and write this book, but I'm not doing it because I'm afraid of the consequences. To me, that is self-censorship, and it has nothing to do with good manners um, uh, because it's driven by fear, not about a wish to be polite. How prevalent is it now in Denmark, in Europe, elsewhere? I, I, I think it's, it's getting worse. Um, and, and uh, you know, a lot of people back then thought that we had made up this situation, that we provoked it and nothing would have happened if it hadn't been for... We would not have this kind of situation, but but I think it's clear to everybody now that that we do have you know cartoon crisis uh, every now and then where 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 and 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 it has to do with with uh, you know some fundamental factors that have that have changed our societies and and the one is you know migration the fact that people are moving across borders in numbers never seen before in the history of mankind which means that not only the United States, you, you, you have this experience already, but, but basically any society in the world is getting more multicultural, multi-ethnic and multi-religious. We are getting more and more diverse. Um, and on the other hand, you have technology, uh, the fact that what is being published in a newspaper in a small country in a language that very few people in fact can read, is immediately published everywhere. And compared to say, let's say 50 years ago, when in a Pakistani, Afghan, Afghan, Afghanistan village, people would through their whole life maybe encounter only 50 or 200 people, and they would not know what was going on 50 kilometers away. Now they know what is going on 5,000 kilometers away. And even though they cannot read and write, they react politically to what is happening, let's say, in, uh, in, in, in Denmark. And, and the question is, you know, how do we, how do we handle this new diversity? Uh, and my point is that with growing diversity in terms of religion, ethnicity and culture, you will, you will also have to accept more diversity when it comes to ways of expressing ourselves. And the irony, I think, is that a lot of people who support a multicultural society, they do not support the same diversity when it comes to speech. And I think that's a paradox. Uh, and, and quite often they cannot see it themselves. Well, they would argue that we can't live to eat with each other if we constantly offend each other, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, one of the factors you mentioned that's particularly interesting, you're not politically naive, but, but you refer to the tyranny of silence. This is one of a lot of very good quotations about it, as a society in which grievance fundamentalism is consistently practiced, where nothing meaningful can be uttered since any speech of any sort may potentially be characterized as offensive to some person or group. What is grievance fundamentalism and to what extent is it driving this phenomenon? I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a consequence of the erosion of the very important distinction between speech and action, between words and deeds. A lot, an increasing number of people believe that words can be as uh, criminal as deeds. Um, and, and, and I think the irony is that, that this is in fact the way the Christian church thought about these issues before the enlightenment. That when you, when you criticized the church or doctrine 
verbally it was being perceived as a physical attack on the church and therefore you could be condemned to death. Um, but I've, I think the issue is, you know, it's also because people want harmony. They don't want conflict. Uh, they believe that we, if we, if we uh, you know, if we are quiet, if we don't talk about things that, uh, that bothers, bother us, then we will, then we will keep the, uh, the, the, the peace. But I don't believe so. Uh, and I think basically, you know, there are two ways to go. You can say, if you respect my taboo, I respect yours. If you do not criticize what is sensitive to me, I will not criticize what is sensitive to you. If Holocaust denial is a criminal offense as it is in many European countries, publication of cartoons like these should also be a criminal offense. And if that's the case, then you would also need not to publish cartoons of other religions, uh, uh, making fun of other religions and prophets and if you do that with religion, you would also have to do the same with, with non-believers. A lot of people like Karl Marx or, uh, or Milton Friedman or Adam Smith, so then we are not allowed to make fun of them as well. And uh, I basically believe, you know, this is the road to the title uh, of my book, A Tyranny of Silence, where, where you are not able to say anything that not will be offensive to somebody. And I, I, I make the point that, that, you know, in a democracy, you have many rights. The right to free speech, to freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, you have a right to vote, freedom of movement. But I think the only right you should not have in a democracy is a right not to be offended. That we have to pay, you know, the price we have to pay for living in this nice, free, open societies is that there are people who from time to time will say something we find offensive. And that is growing, that risk is growing with diversity. Your book has a theoretical backbone, which I think makes it unusual. Um, you point out something that, to back up a bit, um, impelled me to write Kindly Inquisitors, or begin writing it in 1989. This, of course, was the Ayatollah Khomeini's fatwa against Salman Rushdie. The first time, I think, in all of human history when a sovereign state issued a global murder warrant against an individual human being uh, anywhere in the world, forever, based on something that that person had said and written. That was astonishing. But at the time, what was even more astonishing to me and what set me off writing Kindly Inquisitors um, was that the reaction for many in the West was that, well... You know, it's certainly bad to threaten Salman Rushdie with murder, but it's equally bad for him to have written this book. He's the perpetrator, in a way, and offended Muslims are victims. Mm -hmm. um, that comes back very strongly in the cartoon crisis. Um, you have a couple of sentences about it. Vivid. Thus, perpetrators were transformed into victims, victims into perpetrators. The view that the newspaper and I would be to blame if there were a terrorist attack is something that you refer to. It was by no means an uncommon charge. What is this topsy-turvy world? It, it has to do with what I mentioned earlier, the erosion of the distinction between words and deeds. And, and uh, I mentioned Theo van Gogh, who was killed almost exactly 10 years ago by a, a young Muslim who was offended by what he had done or said. said in this movie, and, and, and at that time, the Minister of Justice of the Netherlands went public saying, you know, if we had had a law banning 
outlawing what Van Gogh was saying, he would still be alive. This is in, a, in one of the leading liberal democracies in, in Western Europe, you know, making it exactly the other way around. But my, 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 my favorite example when it comes to, you know, this erosion that makes it difficult to distinguish a perpetrator and a victim is a Russian story. Um, some years ago, there was an exhibition at the Sakharov Museum in Moscow called Religion Be Careful. And, and, and most of the pieces of art that were exhibited there were dealing with Christianity. It's a private museum. Um, and and, and uh, within, I think, a couple of days, uh, some offended Orthodox Christians showed up and they basically destroyed the exhibition and the room of the exhibition. And the guard called the police, they showed up and they uh, arrested the perpetrators. And you would think, end of story. Unfortunately, not so. Uh, two, two weeks, three weeks later, charges were being dropped against the people who committed this crime and charges were being brought against the director of the museum and the curator for inciting religious hatred. And they were in fact convicted um, uh, a year or two later. That case is now before uh, the European Human Rights Court. But, but this is exactly the consequence of, of eroding the distinction with, between committing violence and saying something, expressing something offensive. A theme that emerges from your book is we should not think of this as just some violent people now and then taking out their anger, that there's a deep and fundamental challenge to the freedom of expression and the philosophy that lies behind it. Words are bullets in this world. Mm -hmm. um, so you were invested, or Yulin's Poston was investigated as part of all this, cleared ultimately, but the government was not exactly keen to take up the, the lance, is that right? Well, I think, I think uh, you know, we received the kind of support that we could expect from the government. I mean, the prime minister was under huge pressure and at the height of the crisis, maybe he gave in a little bit, but not, not, not that much. Uh, I would say broadly that uh, we could have, you know, uh, we could have had a lot less support than from our government at the time. And, and, and United States, I mean, Denmark is a close ally of the United States uh, and we sent troops to Iraq and Afghanistan. But at the beginning of this crisis, uh, the Danish government, I think, could have hoped for more support from the United States. It only came when Danish embassies were burning, started to burn down in Syria and, and, and Lebanon. Um, and, and the Danish government was also you know, pretty isolated within the European Union. Um, uh, on balance, were you satisfied with the government's response? I would say yes. But I would not be satisfied with the, with the general response of the, the European Union. The public response is not as good. And am I right to recall that, that um, there was an investigation of you in the newspaper by the government? Not, 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 well, yes, by the government, but that was, uh, you know, the prosecutor general, the general attorney in Denmark. Uh, but he dropped charges. He said, you know, in Denmark, you can only raise a case if you, the state can only initiate a case if it believes that it can win it. And he didn't believe they could win it. So he dropped it. But we had two civil cases that we won. Hmm. Today, um, do you think anyone would publish a page like that in Denmark? No, and not only in Denmark. Anywhere in Europe? No. 
But, uh, but, but may, maybe in, in France there is a satirical magazine, uh, Charlie Hebdo. Uh, maybe they would do it. Uh, and and we, don't, we do not publish that page uh, anymore. I mean, next year is going to be the 10th anniversary of the publication. And, you know, we have a challenge before us. Uh, how are we going to handle this without republishing? Because, you know, editors in Denmark, uh, some of them are saying, well, we don't have to publish them when we have a story about this issue because we now know what these cartoons look like. And my, my reply usually is, is, we also know what Obama, Obama looks like. But every time we have a story in the paper about Obama, we have a photograph of him. So, so it, I, it's, it's a way of, of hiding or rationalizing your, your fear, what's, what's a real motive. And I, 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 I've, I'm not criticizing my editor-in-chief or the CEO for not publishing. I, I'm just calling on honest for honesty. We should say we are not publishing it because we are afraid. And I think, you know, we have also paid... I mean, a, a, a big price in the sense that, that uh, we are a heavily guarded uh, building. I mean, you, you cannot, every morning when I go to work, I have to go through three or four fences and doors just to get to my, to my office. Um, we'll come back to that, but I can't resist asking a slightly unfair question of the group here. So imagine that we had a big easel back here and a bunch of pens, and imagine that I offered people in this room the opportunity to come up here now and draw a depiction of the prophet. How many of you would even consider doing that? Quite a few hands. How many of you would think that you would not consider doing that? We're about, well, more saying they would than wouldn't. I actually thought about requesting this actually be put up and then see if people would do it, but that seemed like too much of a stunt. But more, more people are say they're willing than not. I wonder if that's, if that's really right. I would be frightened to do that. Um, these proceedings are going online. They'll be there forever. Um, I might do it, but I'd sure worry about it, and I'd sure think hard about it. And this page is no longer available via the newspaper. It is. Posted. It is. Is it online? Can I... If you are subscribed to the newspaper, you can access so it. It hasn't been suppressed. No. Uh, your life changed. Tell us about that. Well, <laughs> if we take the security side, I uh, I had to live with with bodyguards and uh, for a while, but I I made a very wise decision very early on um, after cons consulting with the Danish police. I came back to Denmark from Russia in 2004, so I had only been living there for one year. So it was very easy to remove my name for, from official re registers and my address. So I'm, I'm living, you know, secret address. Everything, all subscriptions are in my wife's name. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I have learned some small tricks from the police, how to behave myself, uh, not to catch attention, not to, you know, leave traces, uh, to, just to be careful. Uh, Are you still under guard? Uh, 
not uh, you know not the way I used to be, but I have I have a permanent dialogue with uh, the Danish police, uh, and and that will not. I don't believe that will change, but it's not, you know, it's not, uh, it's not bothering me that. I think it was, it was very unpleasant to have bodyguards. Uh, really, uh, you have to co coordinate all in your life. <laughs> Imagine being uh, Salman Rushdie. Yeah, yeah. Completely Ter underground. Yes, and Kurt Westergaard. I mean, he is now seven. We should talk about yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, this is a remarkable man. He's yeah. significantly older. Yes, he's uh, he 79 this, years old now. The cartoon of the famous cartoon is the one of the prophet with the turban with the bomb in it, and that was drawn by Kurt Vestergaard, a very prominent artist in Denmark. And he was the target of assassination attempts. Yes, several, I would say. I mean, he was he was almost killed on New Year's Eve 2010. Um, uh, offended Muslim went all the way from Copenhagen to Aarhus. That's a three-hour train drive with an axe in his uh, back and uh, he went to his private home and uh, he he uh, smashed the window uh, and went into his house he was there with his uh, granddaughter and he fled to the safe room uh, uh, the toilet uh, and that's why he's alive so he could push a button and the police showed up within two minutes and um, um, the man with the axe was shot in his foot, uh, and he's now serving a, a prison term. But 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 you know several other attacks have in fact been foiled at an earlier stage, uh, and um, and Westergaard is living with security in his backyard 24/7. I mean the police literally they do have they have built a house in his backyard and they, they are there around the clock. They live there. Seven, 79 years old. So in that sense, he'll never be a completely free man again. Never, no. What's he like? How does he feel about all this? He feels okay. I mean, he's retired and he really, I mean, he is uh, 79. He has suffered some uh, health problems. But, uh, but you know, he doesn't regret and, and he's still uh, making drawings, not for the paper anymore, but uh, he's working with a private gallery in uh, in Denmark, and he still travels every now and then, uh, and, and he's in good mood. That's, that's very good to hear. Yeah. Um, you're against treaties like the wonderfully named United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, surely something the United Nations yeah. can do with a piece of paper. Um, you argue that the United States, which is on a different model from Europe and indeed most of the world, where hate, crime, hate speech laws are unconstitutional here, and that makes us, I think, unique. Maybe Hungary is similar. No, not anymore. No longer? No. So we're now really the only major and Western you, and, country. And you're getting more and more unique. That will protect the speaker against the offended. And you argue against European consensus that the United States is right mm -hmm. and that they are wrong. Tell us why and tell us how that's gone over in Europe. To me, this is a very important uh, part of my book because it's, it's something that I didn't know, in fact, that I found out reading um, about it. Uh, and it, it goes back to uh, the aftermath of the Second World War. Uh, you had the Nuremberg trial, you had uh, Julius Streicher, the editor of Der Stürmer, an anti-Semitic magazine, he was among those convicted to death in 1946, and he was executed. 
Um, and, and, um, and, and then when uh, the members of UN started to negotiate and work out this convention on human and political rights, there was a struggle between what you can call you know, free and unfree countries. And, and Article 20.2 in the Convention on Human and on, on uh, Political and Civil Rights is the one justifying passing hate speech laws, in fact, obligating countries who um, sign this uh, uh, convention. What, what, what I didn't know was, in fact, that this paragraph was instituted into uh, the convention um, on behalf of the Soviet Union and uh, uh, on free countries while Eleanor Roosevelt, who was chairing this uh, committee at the UN and, and other Western countries were against it. Basically saying, you know, this is a rubber stamp for uh, silencing uh, dissident voice, voices within dictatorships. And that is exactly what, uh, what, what, what happened. And I think it is all, it, it, it is all uh, and, and, yeah, and, and interesting thing, when, 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 when Stalin's ambassador to the UN tried to get you know, harsher language into this paragraph, Stalin at the same time was about to, to ethnically, ethnically cleanse Jews uh, and, and, and the Soviet press was full of anti-Semitic uh, slurs in 1948, 49. Uh, um, and, and, uh, but it, it basically boils down to a wrong reading of the reasons behind the Holocaust. Uh, because uh, a lot of people, when I discuss these issues, would say defending HP's laws, we know what happened in Germany and Europe in the 20s and 30s, that basically evil words will sooner or later lead to evil deeds. And if, if it hadn't been for too much free speech in the Weimar Republic, uh, Hitler would never have come to power. But it turns out, in fact, that in Weimar Germany, you had hate speech, hate, hate speech laws on the books. You had three different hate speech laws. And if you take Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, he was uh, fined many times when uh, when the vice police director of Berlin, Bernhard Weiss, uh, who was Jewish, he took him to court and he won all the cases. And Julius Streicher um, was in jail twice in the 20s in, uh, in Germany for having published anti-Semitic images. And his magazine was confiscated and taken to court, I think, 36 times. So, so there is no you know, immediate correlation between hate speech laws and fighting uh, racist Yeah, the history uh, here is fascinating. You, you point out that, in fact, the hate speech laws helped the Nazis by giving them exactly. a public platform, a yes. place to argue. Exactly. And the experience with these laws is very often that they suppress speech on the part of those who are fairly reasonable and open to the kind of persuasion that public give and take allows, while they magnify the influence of exactly. people like Fred Phelps who yes. want to go to the Supreme Court. Yes. And, and you found that in Europe. So, so you think that these kinds of conventions um, are wrong in principle, not just in practice. The hard case, of course, is, is it okay for Germany to ban Holocaust denial, for example? You know, I'm not German, so I, I will not judge the Germans. I, I know they have a very um, horrific uh, uh, history, uh, and I know there are historical reasons for this, but I would say that, that, that the only reason for having Holocaust denial books on laws on the books would be if it equals incitement to violence. 
that if there is a risk that that you know doing this would uh, would 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 risk a repetition of what happened during the second world war but what I, what I found out when I wrote my book was because I would I would have imagined that these laws has had been passed in the 50s and in the 60s but I found out the vast majority of, the, of them were passed after the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, which I find very strange but there is a reason for this and and it has to do with uh, this grievance culture, uh, although I know this is a very specific case, and there were people who wanted to protect the victims of the Holocaust, which I found, uh, you know, admirable. But it's, it's a very good example of how, you know, the way, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And, and, uh, and now we see that these Holocaust denial laws have in fact prompted other groups to come forward and insist on protection of their sensibilities. And the final example, it's not in my book, but this spring, the Russian parliament passed a law referring to the Nuremberg trial as the Holocaust denial laws uh, uh, do, referring to Nuremberg trial and, trial and, and criminalizing criticism of the behavior of the Soviet Union during the Second World War, which means that my good friend, Antony Beaver, a British historian who wrote a book, about the Soviet army uh, going into Berlin in 1945 and they were raping women and uh, 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 um, uh, committing you know, violent crimes, uh, which is a criticism of the behavior of the Soviet Union. And he would not go to Russia anymore. Uh, and it, it's this, it's this you know, principle that, that you want to protect your own version of, uh, of, of, of history. It's very, it's very basic for, the, for Russia because the victory of the Soviet Union in the Second World War is Russia's ticket to a seat at the UN um, uh, Security Council. So when people challenges their version of what happened during the Second World War, they feel it's an attempt to legitimize, delegitimize uh, their status as a great power. Uh, and it's also, it's also playing into to this identity politics, which is becoming more and more important because when a society is getting more and more diverse, you start asking yourself this question, who am I in, yeah, in this? Yeah, I, in I noticed this. that I think last year some bureaucrat in the European Union somewhere proposed that uh, the states need to begin adopting sanctions against sexist speech. So the inkblot exactly. tends yeah. to spread. Yes. It's a reported book, which I'd like to emphasize. This is not just about the cartoon crisis, uh, but Fleming goes around Europe. He does some remarkable things. He talks, goes to Russia and talks to uh, dissidents about their role and why it's important and likens what goes on in Islamist regimes to uh, communism in some ways. That's a good thing to discuss in the questions, which we should move to. But there's also a wonderful passage where you actually go to a prison and interview an Islamist who probably was getting ready to make an attempt on Kurt Westergaard's life. And that's an amazing episode. Why don't, before we go to questions, can you just tell us what that was like? Yeah, uh, well, the Danish police tried to persuade me not to go to the prison and uh, see him. And it was like a secret security operation just to get there. <laughs> but... Uh, but I interviewed him for about uh, two hours um, and we had a friendly uh, conversation. This was a young man from uh, Tunisia um, who had married a Danish girl. He came to Denmark. He was in fact secular when he came to Denmark. 
Um, and uh, he spoke very good Danish, uh, and in that way he was integrated. But then at one point, he ran into a fight, and uh, he beat a, a visitor to a discotheque, to a discotheque quite severely, and he had to spend, I think, six months in prison. And after he came out of prison, he couldn't find a job. He tried and tried and tried. And, uh, and, and this young man was frustrated and looking for an identity, uh, a place in life. And then he started to uh, frequent a radical mosque. And, and, and the imam there offered him this very strong identity. Uh, and then, step by step, he started to radicalize, uh, ending finally by, you know, trying to become a hero if he could have killed the uh, Kurd Westergaard. But what's interesting is your encounter, he's not a fierce ideologue, he's a lost soul. Yeah. He's kind of a young yes. pup. Yeah. Fleming Rose is author of the new Cato book, The Tyranny of Silence. You can get your copy at cato.org.